Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Uh, today, we're going to be talking to Jonah Furman of Labor Notes, and we're going to be talking about probably the biggest story of the week, which is, of course, the uh, rail deal. Yeah, Biden's which, betrayal of workers. Yeah, it's okay. So just to give everybody the backstory, and obviously we'll talk about all the specifics with uh, with Noah. What went down is, what was it, a month ago or a few weeks ago, there was the threat of a rail strike and um, Biden intervened and they negotiated like a temporary deal to avert the strike or at least right. push a potential strike date back. Now, as part of that deal, they did get uh, pay raises, but the sticking point where there was massive disagreement was over paid sick leave. And there was either no paid sick leave in the one deal day. or one day paid sick leave. And they were asking for like a week or two More weeks or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, understandably so. Yes. And so um, the unions voted on it. Uh, most of them actually voted in favor of the deal, but there were four unions out of, I believe, 12 that four, voted against the deal. Right. And including the largest union, right. yeah. because, you know, it's wildly different how many workers these different unions represent. A number of the ones that did uh, vote in favor of the deal, it was very narrow. So there was clearly a lot of unhappiness. Correct. Of with course. This deal that was negotiated by the union leadership and the real bosses. So then the one way to stop the strike would be if Congress intervenes and basically votes in favor of forcing them to take the deal. Mm -hmm. Now, the most Weasley part of this, though, is um, Pelosi gets on the on the floor of Congress and starts virtue signaling about how, oh, you know, the, this corporate greed is out of control and we got to look out for the workers and all this stuff. And and so what she does is she puts two bills on the floor, one of them to force the unpopular deal, which wasn't approved by the workers through, and then another one to grant seven days paid sick leave. Now, for those of you who don't understand the ins and outs of politics, there's only one reason why Pelosi would split those bills. Knowing, hey, this first one, the one that forces the workers to take the deal, that's going to pass the House, that's going to pass the Senate, that's going to become law, and we're going to destroy the strike. The The paid sick leave bill, I didn't see the results. It may have passed the, the, passed House. the House. Okay but it's going to probably die in the Senate. So you separate those things out to, to virtue signal, like I'm fighting for these working people, but ultimately, you know, the paid sick leave is going to die. If you really wanted to fight for it, you had to put it in the original bill. Even worse than that, it also gave uh, progressives who were upset about having the original deal crammed down the throat of the workers. It gave them an out to still vote for breaking the strike, but then also vote for the paid sick leave and be like, see, we're standing up for workers. But and tell me if you agree with this. I think they know they're full of shit. They know why the two bills were separated out. Of course. Yeah. So they're lying and they're bullshitting as if they're fighting for these workers and they're stabbing them in the back. Well, and what's really humiliating is, I mean, first of all, let's be clear in the House, the paid sick leave portion passes every Democrat votes for it and only three Republicans. So let's be clear about where all of their like pro working class rhetoric on the right actually is. But it's also humiliating because uh, in the Senate, Marco Rubio, after Biden announces like, ah, we're going to break this strike and we're going to cram this, this deal down, Marco Rubio gets to his left and is like, no, this is wrong. I'm not voting for it. And uh, him, Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz. And Newt Gingrich, too, was on Twitter Newt saying Gingrich. the same thing. But I will say yeah. this, because I think this is important. If if it actually came down to their vote, they would have forced the deal on the workers, too. This is all posturing, is my point. I don't know about that because I, I think uh, because I think they would enjoy, you know, if the economy suffers under Biden, that's fine for them. They don't care. So I, I actually think they would stick with what they've said publicly and not vote for the um, don't agree the deal. at all. Yeah, I don't agree at all. But they that. ultimately don't need their vote because all the Democrats and most of the Republicans will vote for it anyway. Correct. Yeah. So but the, that's why I think they're doing it. They can posture. Yeah, they can posture yeah. and it's costless. 
Correct. Costs. Yeah. It puts them in the right place from a yeah. partisan perspective. They get to pretend like they're pro-worker. I mean, I'm not saying any of this is anything but cynical calculation, but it's still humiliating for Democrats. Nonetheless. Oh, it's massively humi- hum- humiliating for Democrats. And Biden, in with this one instance, destroys all of his credibility with unions. And Mr. I'm the pro-labor yeah. president. No, you're fucking not. Fuck out of here. This is OK. I'm going to I'm going to go insane. But let me just. So I covered a story the other day, four day work week story. Yeah. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah. New trial in, in the UK, thousands of workers in it, hundred companies in it. Everybody's already happy as so far as long as they've been doing it. Uh, so I went back and checked out an article that was similar to that from 2013 in Alternet. Did you know uh, Republican President William Howard Taft said that every worker in America should get three months paid vacation? Hmm. There was a time we were this close to getting a 30-hour work week during the New Deal era. The bill actually passed the Senate. And then at the last minute, actually, this is one where FDR fucked up. At the last minute, FDR uh, dropped support for it. And instead, they went with some other New Deal program as opposed to the 30-hour work week. Yeah. So look at what's going on here. There was a time when a conservative Republican president was saying every man, woman, every, every worker in America should get three months paid vacation time. Now you have a Democratic president who postures like, I'm the most pro-union you know, president there's ever been. And you can't even get a week of paid time off for these right. workers? Right. You cuck yourself that much? And has just completely adopted the language and the framing of the corporate executives who have taken stock buybacks, record profits. Absolutely. I mean, this would do nothing to their, like their bottom line would 3% be- 3% of their profits. Perfect, in perfectly yep. good shape mm-hmm. if they just gave these workers a few days off. And that's what this is ultimately all over, is the willingness of these corporate bosses to tank the entire economy to make sure they don't lose a penny off of their profit margins. And it's grotesque. And Biden has adopted their framing, you know, talking all about, oh, the economic impact of a strike. We can't possibly have that. I just saw actually polling today from more perfect union saying, you know what, the American people, even when you tell them that a strike will have negative economic impacts, they still support Mm -hmm. the workers and say it's worthwhile to have the strike. And if you look at the income data, it's not surprising. The higher you are up on that income ladder, the more likely you're you are to say, oh, we can't have the economic impact. The working class people are overwhelmingly in support of the workers here. And yeah, Biden postures like he's pro-working class, pro-labor. I have been very complimentary of the personnel he's put on the National Labor Relations Board, which has been extraordinarily important for this grassroots labor movement. But then you look at some of the other details, you say, oh, how come you didn't do what you promised on the campaign trail and withhold federal government contracts from union busters like you said you would? How come instead you just invited Christian Smalls and other workers to the Oval Office in some virtue signal play and didn't actually use the power of your office? Oh, what happened to your push to pass the PRO Act? Where did that go? Which would so, have been transformative, by the way. Which would have been transformative and still would be transformative. And so, you know, ultimately the idea that he's some like historic pro-labor president, it's complete bullshit. This is like, this is very closely analogous to when Ronald Reagan famously broke the strike of the air traffic controllers and it put a chill through labor for a generation. These sorts of actions from the federal government have a widespread impact on the entire labor movement aside from just this industry that it directly impacts. Well, I would love to see the workers go on strike anyway and then see what Biden does. Yeah. 
Because, okay, all right, you want to you wanna play this game? I'm the most pro-union president. Okay, what are you going to do? You're going to fire all of them like Ronald Reagan did? Send in Is the that National Guard do? like we have in uh, rail strikes past. I mean, you know, it would be a wildcat, technically illegal strike. I don't um, give a fuck. I don't, Solidarity. Okay, I don't either, yeah. but it's not our, like, jobs and lives and potential being, you know, thrown in prison on the line. So what's more likely to happen, you do have some workers who are saying, like, fuck it, we should strike anyway. I think what's more likely to happen is what has been happening over the past number of years, which is that they just quit. They leave. They move on to other industries. And you already have rail freight dramatically understaffed. That's part of what led to these incredibly onerous um, sick leave, you know, and lack of sick leave policies and just like shifting the burden onto the reigning workforce. So you have more workers who are likely to leave and will be very hard to replace them. And so a critical part of our supply chain, which we all supposedly care a lot about, is going to be undercut even more than it already is. And then we'll run around, around wondering like, oh, why is inflation high? Why aren't our goods getting where they're supposed to go? It's because you guys screwed the workers over who you need to do this. Yeah. And the thing that pisses me off the most is the dishonesty in, in what they did here. We're going to split the bills. It's like, well, we know why you're doing that. Yeah. We know you're doing that so you can virtue signal like you support the workers when you substantively do not support the workers. I want to give credit the only Democrats who did the right thing here. Um, Representative Norma Torres... Representative Rashida Tlaib, Representative Mary uh, Peltola, that's the new one from Alaska. Yeah. Uh, Mark Pocan. She's very pro-fish, Mary Peltola. Mark Pocan actually did the right thing. Mm -hmm. Surprising. I'm genuinely surprised by that. Uh, Donald Norcross, Jared Golden, Mark DeSalnier, and Judy Chu. So that means AOC... Ilhan Omar, Jamal Bowman, who, by the way, was virtue signaling on Twitter about how much he supports workers. Yeah. Yeah. And then you stabbed him in the fucking back. And don't, don't, lie to me and pretend, oh, I didn't know that if we split the bills that this was going to be the result of it. My ass, you didn't know that. My ass. We're burying, we're burying the conversation that we're going to have here with Jonah because like, we're talking about all yeah, the things well, we're going to talk about. Yeah, well, Jonah will have even more so, to say about all of this and how we got to this point. Correct. So, Because um, he's been the best, one of the best. There have been a number of good labor reporters on this, but Jonah has been a, a must-follow and has really put the voices of the workers themselves at the center of his coverage, which that's the other aspect of this that I want to talk to him about, which is like the media failure on this story has been profound. It's disgusting that they can't state the obvious, which is what we just said, which is, oh, you're separating the bills so that the paid sick leave dies. Yeah. Like that's a that's a stone cold fact. And nobody in mainstream media will say it. Yeah. Nobody will say it. Well, they've taken the uh, narrative from the railroad bosses the whole time. The number of stories I read that were reported, you know, supposed to be about a potential rail strike and didn't even mention the just basic legitimate concerns that these workers have and the fact the that they get buybacks. no paid sick leave or don't mention the stock buy. All that's like just completely ignores this and just focuses on like, oh, my God, they'll shut down the economy. We can't have that, which, again, is a great, you know, which is really useful. And also didn't mention that the last time when we were close to a strike, it actually wasn't the strike that started to come into effect. They started to have a lockout. They started to intentionally shut down the rail lines to sort of wield this economic weapon as leverage to get their way. So yeah, the media malpractice on this has been um, really disgusting and something that I know Jonah will have strong feelings on as well. And, so and let me just we'll say, like, uh, when Biden does something good, I give him credit. Mm-hmm. And there are oftentimes, sometimes that gets me in trouble with the left or with my own audience. How much have I talked about the NLRB? Like, right. I'm and, sure it's annoying how much I talk about and it. <laughs> how many times have I talked about the student loan debt reduction? How right. many times have I talked? I'm the only person who's like ever brought up the fact that Biden signed an executive order doing a $15 minimum wage for all federal government contractors and employees. That's 
over 300,000 people who got a raise because of an executive order that he signed. You have to give credit where it's due, right? And so, uh, you know, uh, I'm fair, I'm nuanced. I'll tell you the good things and I'll tell you the bad things. But the fact of the matter is, there's no putting lipstick on this pig. Mm -mm. There's no putting lipstick Mm -mm. on this pig. We know exactly what the fuck you did here. Yep. You stabbed organized labor in the back and people are going to remember that. They're going to remember that. Yes, they will. So anyway, uh, let's get to, we'll come back to this whole conversation with Jonah. He knows more about it than Crystal uh, or I know. And so we'll get into the specifics. But before we do that, um, so there's some kind of good news to discuss here as well. The good news is um, they had a vote on what's called the Respect for Marriage Act in the Senate, which is honestly, it's a, it's a bipartisan deal and it's a, it's a compromise bill. Yeah. That they passed. So let me yeah. set this up for everybody. Uh, I'm sure all you guys remember when Roe versus Wade was overturned. Uh, you had Clarence Thomas write that, hey, we should take a look at Obergefell next, which is, you know, fancy justice way of saying uh, we should overturn gay marriage. Yep. And so, you know, that put shockwaves through the political world. Everybody was like, holy shit, they might actually overturn the right to gay marriage next. And so what happened is the House took a vote on it and they passed basically the status quo as law. So just so everybody understands, when the Supreme Court says that, uh, that you have a right to gay marriage, then that's the supreme law of the land. And they're saying this is our interpretation of the Constitution is that under equal protection, you have a right to get gay married if you want to get get gay married. That's different from passing a federal law saying that you can get gay married. So what they did here is they they passed the law through the House basically to keep the status quo. And the idea is if the Supreme Court overturns it, Mm -hmm then you still have it as the law of the land because Congress passed it. So um, it passed, but there were 157 Republicans who voted against the right to gay marriage, which is astonishing because you have uh, an issue. It's a 70% issue in the country. Like this is now, it's game, set, match. Their own base is majority in favor of this at this point as well. Correct. So So they're voting, you know, at odds with even their own base on this issue. So it's just the hardcore evangelical fundamentalists. These are the only people in the country that are still left against it. So it gets to the Senate. And guess what? Because of the Republicans, they go, this thing ain't going to pass. It's going to die. So everybody's like, okay, well, what do we do now? Right. And so then uh, some people on the Democratic side said, well, maybe we can work out a deal with the more moderate Republicans if we make a a compromise. And so the compromise was um, if uh, the Supreme Court overturns the right to gay marriage, we will still protect the right to gay marriage. But because of religious liberty protections, if an individual church or whatever doesn't want to marry you, you got to pick a different church. Mm. You got to go to a different church. So it's allowing for people to have religious liberty objections while still protecting the overall institution of gay marriage. Aren't they also protecting like, you know, the infamous like right of the baker not to bake the gay wedding cake or whatever? Is that in here as well? Um, I don't know if that particular thing is in there, but I do know that a protection for interracial marriage is also in this bill. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, um, it, look, it's a compromise bill. Now, if you say to me, hey, Kyle, which would you prefer, the bill that the House passed or the one that the Senate was working on? I would say, without a doubt, the one that the House passed, because that's just protecting it as it is right now, which is you have a right, and I don't think anybody can reject you even under the way it works now, because it's a constitutional right. Right. Okay? Um, but if you tell me it's this or nothing, well, then I'm absolutely going to take this, because you need to protect people's rights, even if you have to make a gross a compromise, right? So um, we have the vote, 61 senators vote in favor of it, every single Democrat, and then, you know, a couple of uh, Republicans. 12 Republicans, I think. Yeah. And so I'm first, I'm going to show everybody here. These are the Republicans who voted against it. Okay. We have Richard Shelby, Republican of Alabama, Tommy Tuberville, John Boozman, awesome name, by the way, <laughs> Long Neck Tom Cotton, Tom Cotton, I Joe, uh, Marco Rubio, Rick Scott, Mike Crapo, 
that's a that's a correct last name if you ask me. Uh, Jim Rish, Mike Braun, Chuck Grassley, who's about 917 years old. Roger Marshall, Jerry Morin, Mitch McConnell, Rand Paul voted against it. Rand Paul, Mr. I'm a libertarian, but I'm not really a libertarian. Mm -hmm. uh, Bill Cassidy, John Kennedy, Cindy Hyde-Smith, Roger Wicker, Josh Hawley, Mr. I'm a populist, except fuck equal rights. Uh, Steve Daines, Deb Fisher, Kevin Kramer, John Hoeven, uh, Jim Inhofe, James Langford, Lindsey Graham, Tim Scott, Mike Rounds, John Thune, Marsha Blackburn, Bill Haggerty, John Corden, and Ted Cruz, Mike Lee, Ron Johnson, and John Brasso. So these are 36 Republicans voted not just against gay marriage, against a compromise bill on gay marriage that still, quote unquote, protects religious liberty. Mm -hmm. That's fucking insane. It also apparently uh, doesn't even prohibit states from taking steps to ban or restrict same-sex marriage if Obergefell was overturned. So it's even more of a compromise than just, you know, it has this like religious liberty protection, but it even preserves the ability of states to then to go and be bigoted and say no gay marriage here, but still wasn't good enough for them. And I think one thing to note about this, because you look at the politics of it and you're sort of like, it doesn't make sense. Like this issue is overwhelmingly popular, even among your own base, you're on a step now, like what are you doing? But you look at that list, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, Marco Rubio, they all have presidential aspirations and they're worried that the religious right, which is very well organized, is going to be a problem for them if they vote the correct way on this bill. You're going to get through the primary, though, and then you're going to fucking face plan in the general. People don't like this shit, man. And then yeah. let me also say this. And I don't I don't think by the this way, is none of those dudes I just mentioned are going to get through the primary no. either. No. Yeah, <laughs> not correct. a one of They're them. Not. So They're it's not. all a fantasy. Exactly. Unless, you know, Trump goes to prison or has a heart attack and dies and Ron DeSantis shits himself on stage. In that scenario, maybe one of them <laughs> maybe, will get through. Right? Maybe, but, okay. but I still don't think so. <laughs> but here's my controversial slash. I don't think it's controversial at all. Take curious what you think. The definition of bigoted is obstinately or unreasonably attached to a belief, opinion or faction in, in particular prejudiced against or antagonistic toward a person or people on the basis of their membership of a particular group. I don't know how you can look at somebody who's against gay marriage, even a compromise bill on that, and say they are not a bigot because if somebody is against interracial marriage, which again, by the way, this bill would protect, yeah. right? If somebody's against interracial marriage, nobody even debates anymore if that person is a racist or a bigot. Mm -hmm. It's considered obvious that they're a bigot. Yeah. You can't say, I'm not a bigot, but I think we should ban white people and black people from getting married. No, you are. That's like the definition of it. Mm -hmm. So I, what I would say to these people is, okay, you want to have this position? Fine. Don't you dare whine and bitch and moan and cry. Oh my God, they called me a bigot. They called me racist. They called me naughty words. Own it. If you're going to take this position, fucking own it. And when somebody says it to you, be like, that is correct. That is what I am. And I am proud of that. Yeah. The excuses that they made to like the one that really stood out to me, Marco Rubio, he was like, he didn't want to because, you know, he's he's trying to cultivate this image of like, I'm the younger, cooler GOP dude. And like, I understand these modern issues, cultural shifts, whatever. So he didn't want to overtly say, I'm a bigot and I don't think gay people should be able to get married. So instead, he was like, this is just this is a waste of time and we don't need the bill. It's like, OK, but now the bill is here. It doesn't take you any more time to vote yes than to vote no. And so clearly you just, you oppose it. And 
you know, I think there's two ways of looking at this. Like on the one hand, you have to celebrate the fact that such a thing could get through. You have to celebrate the progress that obviously as a society we've made on this issue. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. Barack Obama himself right. was opposed to it. Hillary mm-hmm. Clinton ran as being opposed to it. I mean, it took Joe Biden actually. Yeah. <laughs> I like the gays, man. Forcing, <laughs> forcing, they, they can get married. Forcing <laughs> Obama's hand to, you know, for them to even come to the right place and stop having the bigoted position here. But on the other hand, you look at the other, what, 36? And you're like, 36, yeah. what the hell is going on that you still have so many just like open bigots as elected yeah. leaders of your party. So it gets even worse than that. I want to show everybody a Laura Ingram video here because this is the line that the right is going with. This is a prominent Fox News host and they are attacking the Republicans who voted the right way. So take a look. Now, we saw this dynamic play out yesterday when 12 Republican senators, all the usual suspects, voted for the deceptively titled Respect for Marriage Act. While purporting to safeguard marital rights of same-sex couples, the law will actually end up gutting the religious liberty rights across the country. Social conservatives, of course, are insulted, yet they're not really surprised. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, look, credit to those Republicans who voted for it. I say that very light credit because these are also the same people who were like, I will not vote for a bill that passed the House, which protects the current status quo. Yeah. In other words, we have to fuck people over somewhat, right? Well, Ben Shapiro, before this all happened, was Matt like, Walsh too? You, should be, you should be kicked out of the Republican Party. If you vote for this bill, you, you hilarious. are hilarious, dude. Okay, good luck with that. You want a permanent 30 percent block in the country? By all means, you're just handing elections over to the opposition. Yeah. And people like him don't want to admit how incredibly toxic their extreme cultural views on abortion and gay marriage and transgender rights are politically. I mean, you know, Trump was a big factor in the midterm elections, but Roe versus Wade mm-hmm. being overturned was probably the most decisive factor in turning what could have been a red wave into just basically a a historic disaster for them. They do not want to acknowledge how incredibly extreme, fringe, radical and out of step with American public they are at this point. Yeah. I mean, this it's about this is about basic equality. I don't know if people understand all the nuances of this, but like if they if we didn't have gay marriage, you would lose visitation rights in the hospital. You would lose inheritance rights. You would lose tax rights. There's a whole bunch of legal implications to that. So it's not just about like, let them have the label. No, there's something deeper at play here. And there's already, by the way, about 1 million gay married couples um, in the US. So that means 2 million people. And so under their ideal system, what would you like? Would you like to, you know, take away their uh, right to marry retroactively? Would you like strip the label from them? Or would it just be from here on out? Like, how would it even work? How, How would this work in the long run. I mean, there are the the cruelties inherent in having not having legal rights as an actual like legal spouse, like material benefits that you get and rights that you have if you are legally married. But there is also just, you know, that's your society saying you're a second class citizen, that you don't deserve the same rights as everybody else. And, you know, the ugliness of that is what Americans have overwhelmingly rejected. I think people like Ben Shapiro, Matt Walsh, and other cultural, you know, right-wing conservatives have gotten uh, a little too emboldened by they felt like they were having success on some other cultural issues. You know, they, they thought like the kids trans things in school and that they were sort of they were winning, making up ground on that, that that was going well for them. And so they thought they could go back to this issue that, you know, the American people have just completely moved on from. And they thought that they could maybe have a case here and and go back and give it another shot. And no, no, people are not going there with you. And in fact, 
it really exposes the rest of the positions that maybe you had more political traction with as kind of a Trojan horse for a a Mm. huge rollback of a lot of rights that people are taking for granted. That's a great point, and that's a great analysis. All right, tell me about what's going on in New York with uh, the homeless population and what the mayor, Eric Adams, is up to. So Eric Adams has taken a uh, more aggressive uh, and draconian and some would say cruel approach to dealing with the homeless population in New York than Mayor Bill de Blasio did. And the latest uh, the latest policy shift is he is pushing the police to remove more visibly mentally ill homeless people from the streets and to ultimately get them institutionalized. So the previous standard had been if you have someone who seems like they are a threat to others, mm. that the police would remove them and, you know, get them evaluated and potentially institutionalized. The new policy and standard is that if they appear to be a risk to themselves and are unable to take care of themselves, then the police are being instructed to uh, remove them from the streets and potentially get them institutionalized. How do you determine that? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? Is it just subjective criteria or is there like a checklist of things that have to be going on or what? Well, that's where this gets very complicated and very difficult and where even the police uh, are not really happy with this shift. There's reporting now that they were really caught off guard because these are not mental health professionals, you know, they are not, as of today, trained to make that judgment. Now, supposedly, they're going to be getting training and how to make this assessment ultimately. But, you know, it really shows you that there is a role for other responses than just police officers in terms of dealing with, you know, challenging problems, including homelessness and visible homelessness and visible mental illness on the streets. Yeah. So, I mean, when it comes to this issue, I think it gets complicated because there's a long-term conversation, like long-term fixes. Yeah. Uh, but then there's also a giant question about what do you do in the short term, yeah. right? So uh, for long-term, I mean, put a roof over everybody's head. You know, what are homeless people missing? Houses. <laughs> so put a oh. roof over everybody's head. And they have done initiatives in other countries. And even in the state of Utah, I believe, where they put an onus on this. Yes. And it works. So Turns out it works. New York City has a right to shelter. And um, so there are, you know, shelter beds available to anyone who wants them. Those shelters are a mess. The New York City population. But that's the thing is those shelters are a mess. And they're for profit, by the way. Sometimes dangerous, um, you know, have can have like onerous onerous sort of like draconian restrictions on them, the quality of them very low, all of that. So that in part is why you have. Uh, according to some counts, somewhere around 3,000, but people think that's an undercount, people who are choosing not to be in the shelters and to live on the streets. So it's not just about a roof. It's about what is the quality of that situation. You have to be able to beat the quality of the situation of sleeping outside, which seems like a low bar, but, you know, New York City has been um, unable to meet. Well, I covered the story, I don't know if it was probably a year or two ago now. I think you may have seen the story as well. There was this big New York Times expose on these homeless shelters and how they were just, it was like a total scam. The guy was just taking this money from the government and doing whatever he wanted with it and padding his own you know, wallet. And then these places would be totally dilapidated, rats running around, not up to code in any way. Right. So this is not, I mean, that's obviously not the solution. So long-term, look, I think you need to have basically um, government rehab facilities that are well-kept with professionals. I think that needs to be there. I think you need to have uh, 
mental health professionals where this is their job and they get paid well for it. And that's something, again, that should be a government initiative. And then, yeah, I do. I, everybody should have a roof over their heads. I think I always like the idea of, you know, those like mini houses that sometimes you see on like HGTV or those other shows where they can be very beautiful and really nice and, and new and everything and yeah. shiny and sparkly. But they're those like mini houses where you could stay. I see no issue. I like I think this this can be addressed. This issue can be addressed. And also studies have shown if you take the approach that I'm talking about, in the long run, you actually save money too. It's fiscally responsible because it costs more to taxpayers to have people without a roof over their head because then they have run-ins with the police, they end up uh, in the hospital and they run up these giant bills and there's all these other issues, financial issues that pop up as a result of it. So long-term, I think that's the answer. Short-term, look, I think there is... I mean, it's true. Whether or not people want it to be true, it is true. They, they've had votes in certain places about these like sweeps, like getting rid of the homeless encampments. Yeah. And every time they put it to a direct vote, people are like, yeah, get rid of all the stuff, you know, like get rid of the homeless encampments. So what do we do on that front? Because on the one hand, you talk about like, well, do you kind of have a right to, you know, if you're homeless and be, basically being in public is your home, don't you have a right to be wherever you want to be? Or does like the, the, the instinct for, no, we want to keep things clean and orderly and, you know, make kids feel safe or whatever the fuck, mm -hmm. or does that override um, the other instinct? So what do you think on that? I mean, there's a few things I want to say here. First of all, I am on the mental illness piece. I am sympathetic to the idea that it is not um, progressive and it is not compassionate to allow people who are severely mentally ill and don't have friends or loved ones around who can help them, that it is not compassionate to just say, yeah, well, just let them be. Um, so the, the core idea here of let's get people help, I have no problem with. The problem for me with this policy comes in and having the police be the ones to uh, execute it. And, you know, it's interesting. The New York Times did a uh, they went and interviewed people who might be impacted by the policy. They interviewed a woman who is herself unhoused and herself uh, schizophrenic. And she had mixed feelings about the policy. On the one hand, she said, actually, the reason that she is able to uh, be on the medicine she needs and have some level of mental stability is because police had taken her to get treatment and she had spent time in a psych ward and that she attributed that to her own current mental stability. On the other hand, she was very leery of the idea of handing police more power. And this was a black woman who felt that she might be a target of that policy. So I think the problem comes in when it's the police who the burden is put on to assess what is the situation with this person and what's the best thing for them to do. And I think there would be an opening here for the left to make the case of, okay, this is why it doesn't make sense to have the police involved in every one of these situations. Now, sometimes you can have mentally ill people who, you know, sometimes can be dangerous or sometimes can be violent. So sometimes it may make sense to have police there as well. But this is where you really need social workers, workers, mental health professionals to be involved from the beginning. So that's number one. Number two, um, you know, other countries have really dealt with this issue because they have a much more generous social safety net. Yeah. Cities have much greater resources to have shelters and housing available that is vastly superior to ultimately sleeping outside. And so, yeah, I think you have to have those pieces in place first before you can just go in and sweep out the homeless encampments. Because, by the way, 
you know, if you look at what's happened since Mayor Adams has come in and he's done these, you know, come in and let me just clear everything out, is it's not like that solved the problem. Those people have just dispersed to other places. You've just relocated the issue, but not actually dealt with it. Right. Uh, I mean, that's true. That's true. So I when I think about Kanye when I think about this issue, seriously, <laughs> okay. because he's a perfect example of somebody who he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Yeah. He doesn't take his medicine. He's very open about that fact. And um, so now he's going around and he's telling everybody like they tried to like they tried to lock me up. And really what he's referring to there is an involuntary hold for a mental health crisis. And so some people would look at that and they go, oh, my God, that's so nefarious. That's messed up. And like you're taking away his rights as a person. Other people will look at that and say, obviously, the more humane thing to do is to temporarily lock him up. So he's not a danger to himself or others and hopefully get him on medication. Right. And so. This is where I think people struggle. They have an issue with it, especially people on the left, because on the one hand, they want to say, look, it, a homeless person is not hurting anybody. They have a right to go where they want to go and do what they want to do. And, you know, everything's fine. Let's not act like this is a bigger issue than it is. Right. Right. But then on the other hand, you know, th the other perspective is like, no, it actually is more. It, it's a more kind thing to do, an altruistic thing to do and a better thing for all of society if when somebody is going through some sort of mental health crisis. Yeah, there is help that's there for them. And it, it might. It's one of those things where it's like, you might not think this is best for you right now, but it actually is best for you. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, on the question of the involuntary holds, I'm definitely in favor of them. But to your point, it's like the, the details matter. And so who do you leave that up to to make the decision? How subjective is the criteria versus objective? Um, and again, I think in the long run, I think most reasonable people agree that there's all the evidence out there already that some places that have very good public housing that... Um, we can just build public housing and, and make it so that you attack this problem head on. And so you won't have nearly as many homeless people, if any homeless people at all. Right. Um, so in the long run, it's like we all agree. The question is, what do you do in the interim? What do you do in the short run? Right. Because there's going to be a lot of people and uh, we're doing ourselves no favors by not acknowledging this is the majority of the population who will say, just like they did in the direct votes on this issue, get rid of the homeless encampments, you know, do the sweep criminalize it, just get these people basically out of my sight type thing. Yeah. But like I said, it's not. I mean, ultimately, without those other supports and resources, that's not going to be a real solution for the long term. People are just going to find another place to be. You know, there's there's so many complicated pieces of this because also on the involuntary hold, there are some places that, you know, there was a, a reform movement to make it much more difficult to just commit people to a psych ward, which was, you know, uh, which was needed, um, which was very well intentioned. Some places then went too far. I'm thinking in particular in Virginia, a guy you guys might remember, Cree Deeds, he ran for governor against Bob McDonald. Horrific situation unfolded here where his 24-year-old son was clearly in the midst of a mental break. They were trying everything they could to get him help, and they could not get anywhere that would keep him because of the way that the laws were, and it was so difficult to get him committed. And it was basically like the person had to have already been violent and hurt themselves or hurt someone else before you could actually right. get that involuntary hold. And so what ends up happening is uh, he tries to kill Cree, uh, his dad. He ends up killing himself because they were not able to intervene and get him the help that he needed in time. So Cree actually ended up, uh, he was still a lawmaker, he's a state senator, 
ended up spearheading reform to that law. And, you know, there's no doubt this is one of those areas where you've got competing priorities because people have civil liberties. You don't want to be in a situation where you can just say, like, that person's crazy and get them locked up. Um, On the other hand, when someone is really mentally unwell, it's for their interest and everyone else's interest to be able to have those protections in place. So there's number one, they're striking that balance. There's another piece of, uh, as part of, you know, I think that same movement, you had a a defunding of uh, psychiatric wards. And so in New York in particular, but a lot of places around the the country. That part is crazy to me. Around the country, there are not enough uh, beds. Reagan destroyed those things. And people always point to that as like, that's that's the problem. And so instead of having people go to, uh, you know, get psychiatric care, instead they get locked up. And that's obviously been a disaster and that doesn't help anyone or anything. It doesn't deal with the underlying problem. It's obviously not compassionate to the people at all. It's criminalizing something that's really a mental health issue. So that's another piece of this. So I don't know. I just look at these problems, which are uh, popping up in cities across the country, no matter what ideological like faction happens to be in charge. And I don't think it's something you can really solve if you are just one city trying to do it on your own because you need broader resources from the federal government. The last thing I'll say is, um, because I did a monologue on this week, so it's top of mind, cities are also facing a budget crunch where they had an infusion of cash from pandemic relief programs, but they've, in recent years, during the pandemic, they've had a mass exodus of uh, affluent professionals Mm. who are moving out to the suburbs Um, who are taking with them their tax dollars, who are taking with them their like retail shopping dollars who aren't in the offices anymore. So you're having a tax base that is collapsing. So it's going to make it even more difficult for these cities individually to have the resources they need to actually address the problem and not just try to push it to the side. To to your point, yes, cities can only do the short-term fixes, right? Because they, like you said, that's they're only equipped to do the so-called short-term fixes. So for example, like Rudy Giuliani in the 1990s, when he was mayor of of New York City, he, you know, he cracked down on homelessness and criminalized it. And like the homelessness was out of this, your plain sight in the city, but they just moved elsewhere effectively. So is that a fix or is that just kicking the can down the road or passing the buck? It's more passing the buck than anything. I mean, that is more more just like making wealthy people feel more comfortable. That is, that that is exactly what that is. Um, but, you know, again, when you look at the polling, people are like, that's better than doing nothing. But you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it gets complex. So, but right. I will say this. This is my final point. Then we can yeah. wrap it up on this and yeah. we can start talking to Jonah. But um, so there's like, there's different tiers of homelessness, right? There's the one that's like, you're homeless, but you have a friend or a family member you can sleep on their couch and, you know, move around that way for a while until you get back on your feet. Then there's like newly on the street, but still have your stuff together enough where, you know, there's a chance for you to make a comeback. And then there's homeless that's like, you've been on the street, it's been for months or years, and, you know, you haven't had a shower in a long time, and you're dealing with other issues as well, uh, drug addiction or mental illness or whatever. So there's different levels to this stuff. And the whole, the first group of homeless is out totally out of sight, out of mind in this country. And I would imagine that that's an absolute scourge. True. And people need to realize, when you talk about homelessness, it's not just like, everybody's mentally ill or everybody has drug addiction. Yeah. Quite the opposite. I would argue probably the majority of them, it's just a money issue. It's just poverty. It's just poverty. Yeah. And so you're going to have to address economics in order to fix this in any serious way, which again brings us back to the long-term conversation where if you have good public housing, if you had, you know, some sort of UBI type program, something of that nature, just better social safety nets in general, 
free healthcare, et cetera, then yeah, in the long run, I, I get you would reduce homelessness by at least 50%, probably more. And then the ones that, um, you know, where it's not as much a systemic issue, it's more of a personal pathology issue, then we can address those on their own with a whole, with a whole different approach. Yeah. So, and it's not like these things are separate either. I mean, the amount of stress that you're under when you're poor uh, doesn't help anyone's mental health. <laughs> the amount of stress that you're under when you're unhoused, when you're living on the street, like that doesn't help anyone's mental health or ability to get clean if they're struggling with addiction. So yeah, it's, it is incredibly complex. It's a difficult situation. And I, I just don't think that these cities, any of them are going to be really equipped to deal with the roots of the problem without federal resources support things like universal health care that includes mental health, for example, things like, you know, subsidies to make sure that they can have that housing, which isn't vermin infested and, you know, dilapidated and dangerous and falling down. So, yep. Let's go ahead Let's and throw get to it to Jonah. Jonah. Uh, Jonah Furman, wonderful reporter, uh, great on all labor issues. He is a writer for Labor Notes. He also has a great substack that just breaks down everything that's going on in the labor movement that week. It's called Who Gets the Bird? Let's get to it. Jonah, it's great to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Yeah, our pleasure. Um, so I would love for you to just start by, because this has been a bit of a, a journey and a long process to get to uh, the Biden administration effectively cramming this deal down the throat of railroad workers. Can you just walk us through how we got here? Because I think that piece actually matters a lot. Yeah, so I'll say this. Railroad negotiations happen, happen under the Railway Labor Act, which is just a different system for how to negotiate a union contract. And built into it is a lot of bureaucracy dating back from the 20s when this law was passed. So for three years, railroad workers have not had a contract and they have uh, been in bargaining that entire time. Earlier this year, they went through a few steps of the process once there was Democratic majorities on relevant boards, and they uh, have gone through every step of the way. You know, there's a further mediation board, there's a cooling off period, there's a hearing, there's a cooling off period. Eventually, they get to the Presidential Emergency Board, which is a Biden-appointed board that uh, recommends a contract settlement. Essentially, how we got here is that railroad workers have been in bargaining for a new contract for three years. They're under the Railway Labor Act, which is a different set of labor laws that's super bureaucratic that has been in place since the 1920s. Essentially, they jump through a series of hoops where they have to have a hearing, arbitration, various interventions from the federal government. And in August, they got to a presidential emergency board, which is almost the last stage where the president appoints a board of you know mediators, arbitrators who say, here's what a fair deal would be for the railroad workers and for the rail companies. Now, the problem was that the deal that they came out with was unacceptable to the members. Basically, it didn't have the adjustments to staffing and working conditions, uh, basically what it's like to have this job that workers were looking for. So then it goes to votes to membership. They basically say, okay, we'll turn this into a tentative agreement and some of the unions voted on it. Some of them voted it down. So all the members are voting. Do you want this deal? They voted it down. We got to this impasse in September where we were one day out from a strike deadline, the first legal strike deadline where the unions could walk off the job or the railroads could lock out the workers. Um, they got to this place and essentially Marty Walsh, the Secretary of Labor and the White House stepped in and said, we're going to negotiate a deal with a few sweeteners. And this becomes the 
the tentative agreement as it's talked about now. So this goes back again, this kicks a strike deadline means there's no big strike in September because they have this last minute deal. The problem is that deal wasn't much of an improvement on the initial deal that workers had been rejecting. So it goes back out for votes. We have several more months of voting and strike deadlines that get moved and moved and moved. When you get to the end of the line under the Railway Labor Act, where you're about to face a strike or there is a strike, it basically provides for Congress to step in and negotiate the contract themselves. And the question was always going to be, what deal is Congress going to legislate on these workers if they're not going to allow them to strike legally? Uh, so where where we got to this week was finally we were up against the, the last deadline, which was going to be December 9th. And the White House came out Monday night saying, we can't have a railroad strike. We agree. You know, they say, I'm a pro-union administration. We hmm. don't agree with forcing a contract on members, but we're going to force a contract mm. on members. And then now it's just been some scrambling, basically, for the rail unions and for some pe- members of Congress to figure out, can we get anything else in this deal instead of just shoving a contract down these workers' throats? And the workers who are in question, it's four of 12 unions that have held out for a better deal, but it's a majority of the railroad workers. So these four unions represent something like 55% or 60% of 120,000 workers that are covered under these agreements. So help everybody understand the specifics of these deals. When Biden gets involved this back in September, I guess, um, you know, and the media made a big stink about how like, you know, Biden comes in and saves the day and, and, uh, you know, gets a deal. But I remember looking at the terms of the deal at the time and saying, you know, I'm, I don't think the members are really going to like this. I don't think the workers are going to agree to this. Um, I, it seemed like they genuinely thought that they would want it, which is you know kind of crazy to me. It shows that they're in their own bubble. But help everybody understand the terms of that deal and then what the issues were and what the workers were asking for. Yeah. So essentially, you know, there's these these are really complicated agreements. You look at one of these contracts and it's over 100 pages long, a lot of legalese and things like that. But the highlights from the deal that the Biden administration put forward was basically something like a 24 percent raise over five years. Some of this is back pay because they've been out of a contract for years. It was one additional day off. So a paid day, not a sick day, but one scheduled day off you could have. And uh, a few other tweaks here and there, but that those were the highlights. And the, the, the simplest way to understand the conflict is that for the workers this time around, primarily, it was not just about the money. Obviously, inflation is hitting these workers' paychecks just like everybody else. But the real thing was, in the past five years, the railroads, I mean, really for 20 years, but but in the past few years, there's been this hyper uh, lean management style, basically means cut all the workers down, do more with less. And because the railroads, especially because the railroads are basically monopolies, they have, you know, people, companies that use freight rail have to use freight rail. You can't just build another railroad. You can't just put your freight onto a different truck or a plane or build a canal. So they they reduce service, they reduce quality by cutting labor costs. They cut labor costs by <laughs> slashing the workforce. So they cut 30% of the workforce in the past five years. And now your life as a railroad worker is miserable. You're filling in all these extra shifts. Your schedule becomes totally uncertain. You're working all the time. So the deal that was negotiated was basically like, we'll give you a big pay raise, but we're not going to make your life any better in terms of what it's like to work the job. And it, it, it's it's actually even bigger than that because the industry is really 
getting into crisis. There's all these congressional hearings and service transportation board hearings where basically they say service is getting so bad through these job reductions that the freight rails are slowly crumbling in terms of you know what they're supposed to move for our economy. So workers are basically sounding the alarm that this is unsustainable and we can't live like this. We need some time off the job. Um, we need less harsh attendance policies. If I get sick, I can't, I shouldn't be fired after 20 years on the job. So the the first deal had nothing nothing added in terms of paid sick days. The Walsh and, and Biden deal in September that was supposed to be a little bit of a sweetener added what they were calling before the details came out. They were saying, oh, they get some extra sick time. What they actually got is three days a year has to be on a Tuesday, Wednesday or Thursday. <laughs> has to have 30 days notice. Yeah. So oh, it's my not God. Like you get the flu. Yeah. It, so and, and all and it was unpaid. So those days would just mean you won't get fired if you give us 30 days notice on a Tuesday, Wednesday or Thursday that you need to go to the doctor. That was supposedly, you know, the big improvement. The other thing it did was it capped healthcare contributions. It capped them at about $400 a month, which again, for a lot of workers, they're not going to hit that level anyway. So there's a few other tweaks, but the main thing that came around these sick days uh, and this question of, is this real sick time? Is this real time off the job? Just, and the answer for most of the workers was no. Just real quick, Jonah, what do you remember what the, the pay raise was in the original contracts? I've read different numbers. I read 10% in one thing and 14% in other things. Do you remember that or no? Yeah, it's it's 24%, 23.5% over five years. The You see different numbers because they say you'll get this much immediately. That's because it's all back pay. They've compressed it into oh, okay. a few years because you haven't, you know. They've uh, been operating gotcha, without a contract. Gotcha. Um, yeah, you haven't gotten a raise in three years. Yeah. there's there. I feel like this whole thing is so revealing. I mean, ultimately, I, I think that these workers have been utterly betrayed by uh, Joe Biden himself. Um, I think that the rail bosses always were banking on the fact that Congress would cram down a deal because they wouldn't want the economic damage. I mean, politicians siding with capital is uh, a tale as old as time at this point. But I also think, you know, it really exposes something about we've been having this whole conversation about our supply chain and COVID revealed like our supply chain is very fragile. And when it when it came apart, this was a major problem for the economy. It was a problem for the companies. It was a problem for average workers because it helped to spark inflation. And um, my understanding is that freight rail is a pretty important part of the supply chain. Um, if the Biden administration now gets their way and this deal gets crammed down workers' throats without added sick leave, um, you're very likely to have a continued exodus of workers continuing to make this critical part of our supply chain more fragile. And then when we come down the road, you know, a, a year or two years or whatever it is and say, huh, why, why aren't the goods moving? What's going on? What's the issue? People are going to forget that this all came down to screwing over the workers who you are depending on to move these goods. Yeah, I mean, the, there, there's a few parts to it. Uh, they're going to lose workers by design. They've been cutting tens of thousands of workers for decades. They've cut many thousands in the past few years. And that's what they want to do. And there's no penalty for the railroad companies for cutting these workers. Plus, workers who find it miserable are waiting now to get their ratification bonus from this. You know, they're going to get their back pay from this contract once it gets imposed. And then they're going to split. Because the conditions of this job have not kept up with, you know, what what folks are used to. And a lot of these people are, you know, skilled, uh, skilled mechanics and things like that do real hardcore uh, 
work that they can get better rates for, especially, you know, workers, rail workers in Chicago, for example, are always, you know, laughing about how every other skilled trade makes more than them in those areas. Hmm. So, yeah, people are going to walk and the railroads are going to keep cutting and there's no penalty for them. They'll probably happily lock in the lower level of service that has happened during the pandemic because what is the consequence you know i mean let alone the financialization of these companies where they basically just treated like banks and they just do stock buyouts they also don't have what other companies have which is some competition to keep up a level of service you know nobody's going to build another railroad that goes from omaha to texas that's set there's one company that's going to operate it you can't if you're a logging company or you know you're a coal company you're you need to move big freight you don't have another option uh for some of these routes so you know what's the incentive for them to hire more they're they're you know the big push has been around one man crews they want to take these trains that currently have a minimum of two people on them it's a 3 mile long train there's two people operating wow. them uh they want to make it one oh, and there was you know, there was a, a save moment, uh, you know, during this process, the Federal Railway Administration basically said, you can't do that right now. Like, just hold off at least for a couple of years um, on that move. But, you know, you're facing being a rail worker who has had no sleep, no time off. You're alone on a three mile train. If you fall asleep, you know, it's like extremely dangerous. And these rail workers are often killed on the job. I mean, I remember the week of the potential shutdown, two rail workers in two separate incidents died on the job. And that stuff is directly connected to understaffing, cutting service, cutting safety regulations, cutting inspections, cutting maintenance. So my understanding, Jonah, is that in the midst of these negotiations with all these issues, um, the rail companies were doing massive stock buybacks. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 the shorthand for it is, is you know, who owns BNSF is Warren Buffett. You know, this is not someone who's like committed to rail service. These are people who see easy money because it's monopolistic, basically. But, you know, I've seen the numbers of something like $10 billion of stock buybacks in the past few years. Uh, there's There's a huge focus just like across the economy here on basically jacking up the prices of the stocks, jacking up CEO pay. Um, and cutting service and, you know, what a, a railroad is supposed to actually do. Um, and it's it's not only no different in the rails, but I think it's sort of on steroids because there is no threat of competition. I mean, the bottom line here is that you have um, some bosses who were willing to hold the entire economy hostage in order to screw their workers and wring like every penny of profit they possibly could out of them. Uh, and, you know, they were willing to, like, blow the whole place up to keep from giving these workers a few days off the very, you know, basic thing that every single worker in America deserves. Yeah. You know, one thing that's interesting to me about this fight is that in most strikes and most labor disputes, there's an underlying economics to it that is you know, matters to the company. In this case, of course, they don't want to, you know, whatever, they don't want to spend any more money than they have to on their workforce, just like any other, you know, employer. But the the amount it would cost for them to give these sick days is extremely negligible. It's something like 2% of their profits or something like that. They don't, it's not an existential threat. It's not a question of, you know, putting in, there's, they're not talking about adding 
cost of living adjustments every year. They're not talking about massive expansion of the workforce. They're talking about spending a really basic amount on a really basic benefit that most, you know, a, a ton of workers get um, just to stop the bleeding of an industry that is in serious crisis. Uh, it was amazing to see during this whole dust up, the whole negotiation process, you had these big, there was the National Association of Chemical Distributors. These are big employers. These are not pro-union groups saying, you got to give these workers some basic stabilizing benefits because service has gotten so bad and we cannot risk a strike. It, the way to do this is to give in on some of the basic demands. In most strikes, you have this question of, well, you know, is the company going to be all right to do this? Can we still expand? Is it going to hurt our business plan? That's not really at play here at all. It's purely about power and control. And something I would say about the, the Biden move that's in that context is especially despicable is that he easily could have put out a statement. He wrote the, the you know, his board made the initial agreements. They made the, the proposal for the tentative agreement in September. When he came out with a statement on Monday night, he could have said, I'm supporting a bill that has the tentative agreement and X number of paid sick days. At every moment, the White House has chosen to not fix the problem, not deal with it directly and take the easy way out, which is going with the employers. So, Jonah, help me to understand why Biden would do that, because he loves to go around virtue signaling about being the most pro-union president. And he's certainly taken, you know, money for his various campaigns from unions. Um, there's been previous things he's done in the past, which has led us to believe, hey, certainly better than Obama was definitely better than Bill Clinton was when it comes to issues of uh, of workers. So why? Why wouldn't he come up with a bill? Even let just for argument's sake, let's say he came out said, okay, here are the terms uh, of the deal, the same as the last one, except I'm going to add three, you know, uh, paid, sick paid sick days. Why wouldn't they do that at all? Because now it's not just a, a policy failure, which it is. It's also a political failure. So you're going to piss off every union worker in the country. And then people can see through the democratic maneuver of separating the, the, the bills out where it's like, here's the b deal we're going to force on you. And then we'll do a separate one that's going to fail with, you know, the seven paid sick days. So why would he do this? Is he just getting bad advice? Is it because he's in the pockets of, you know, the owner class more than he's in the pockets of unions? Tell me your thoughts on that. I mean, I, I think, of course, big money is going to win in the U.S. government. I think that's an undeniable part of it. You have a, a party that is torn between does it want to be a corporate party or does it want to cater it all to labor? And Joe Biden is a great example of that. He'll talk about it. But when the chips are down, which they rarely are, for a president, it's rarely that you have you decide what's going to be in this contract. And now we see, you know, when there's any resistance, any any reason not to, he'll take the side against the unions. I, I will say, I, I think what's going on here is that basically they they screwed it up in the summer when they thought they were giving a pro-union deal with this presidential emergency board. And then they were tied to it. I think part of it is being embarrassed, part of saying, we negotiated the best we could. If we could have gotten better, uh, if we could get better now, then it means we did worse before and we're just sticking with it. Part of it is also the union strategy. I mean, a lot of these unions, there's 12 unions involved. They were split. They didn't have a plan besides hope Joe Biden gives us something. Mm. So there wasn't, you know, you saw a lot of grassroots uh, people saying, here's the demand. We need to keep fighting. You did not see a lot of unions saying, we're going to vote this down until we get our paid sick days in there. 
you know, at every moment it was sort of because how the law works, because unions are afraid to, you know, stir up what it would take in terms of member organization and member anger. You know, they, they, they're not ready to embrace the grassroots in that way. And a lot of these unions, there's, there's a lot of leadership that, you know, feels like we just need to go along to get along. And the best we can do is hope that the Democrats give us something. That was the strategy here from the union side of it. And on the Democrat side, they're happy to point to the union leadership and say, well, they're not too upset about it. Their members seem pissed off, but the union president is telling me they can live with this and they just want to get it done. So, you know, I think it's a it's a big failure on part of the union leadership involved here. Um, and I think I, I think that aside, Biden could have decided to say proactively, it's clear what workers want here. It's clear what the industry needs here. I'm going to go out on a limb and do it. The question whether he would have had 60 votes in the Senate to get it, you know, th- th- what 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 is at stake legislative here, le- legislatively here is basically saying there's either a rail strike or there's a bill. If you make the options, the bill has paid sick days or you're going to have to take a rail strike. You know, I think they had a question of is the GOP going to say we'll take a rail strike because we want to tank anything that the Democrats try to do. We want Biden to look bad. I think that's a real threat. And once you're talking about, you know, the last 48 hours, it's 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 late, late in the day to be trying to make up a plan that's going to win. But I do think, you know, if if they cared about it, they could have whipped votes for a few paid sick days in there, a few better benefits. They also could have stayed out. They could let the workers strike, which is, you know, the right of workers to go on strike, to force concessions from the employer. In any other part of the economy, that's how it works. You don't impose contracts on workers against their will, especially in this case where workers had voted on the same terms that are being imposed now. So it's not a question, are they okay with this? Workers have had their say, right. they said no, and you're choosing to reimpose it. Yeah, so it's, it's sort of a like, lot of factors here. If you were, were going to ultimately just force this agreement down their throats, why'd you even take a vote? And pretend like they had a democratic say. They didn't. They didn't. That was all a show. Um, and now you have politically the humiliating prospect of like Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley posturing like they're more pro labor. Newt Gingrich. Joe Newt, Newt Gingrich. Ted Cruz. I mean, that's that's humiliating. It and, is. you know, as disingenuous as they are. Ultimately, that's something that they've left themselves open to. And Jonah, uh, I've seen comparisons made. I may have made them myself between this moment with Joe Biden uh, breaking a rail strike and uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, famously with PATCO, the air traffic controllers, which was, uh, you know, devastating seminal moment in labor history, really put a chill through the labor movement for decades. Do you think that those comparisons are fair? What are the parallels? I mean, one difference is that the unions in PATCO were not afraid to strike. They didn't move their strike deadline a million times. They didn't blink when it came time to walk. They walked. In this case, you really have to, I mean, the story of this involves the unions coming up against strike deadlines and saying, we're too scared what's going to happen and we don't have a plan otherwise. Mm. I mean, PATCO is echoing in these unions' minds too, but I think there is a militancy gap, basically. Do you have unions that are ready to walk now? And you can say it's a fair assessment not to walk because you're going to get pack code, which is what has now, you know, they say we're scared to walk because we're going to get a contract imposed. They don't walk and they get a contract imposed. You know, they really are in a tight spot in terms of what their options are. But there isn't an appetite from, you know, a big layer of the union leadership to really go down fighting. 
And that means you never find out what what could have happened in terms of Biden. You know, it's it's all the edges are softened here because you don't have unions that are willing to go all the way to the mat. You have a lot of deals being cut and you have, you know, a fear of what happens if we strike. So it takes the edge off for Biden. He doesn't have to force them back to work. He can just sort of, you know, put his thumb on the scale before anything happens. I do think workers across you know, the unions for sure and across the economy are watching what what happens when you and, and and why PATCO mattered, you know, and why this matters is not just the workers that are covered under the agreements. And it's not just organized labor, but it's workers seeing what are my odds if I stick my neck out and try and right. do something new? That's right. You know, if I try and fight, what what, what do I have a chance or is the president just going to say, sorry, no, if that's how you feel about it, then it's it has an extreme chilling effect on not just what the unions are going to do, but also, you know, workers in other industries, non-union workers who are thinking about how can I improve my situation? Um, so. So do you so that it, there's no hope of a strike if Congress gets this through? Is that what you think? Is there any chance that the workers will say, yeah, we know, but we're going to do the strike, even if it's illegal? I would never bet against uh you know, workers taking action. I, I think that's always on the table. It's they face extreme penalties. I mean, you just get fired, lose your pension. You have a bonus that's on the table right now with this tentative agreement. You will not receive. I mean, it's a difference of many thousands of dollars if you think you're actually going to get fired. Patco is not a happy story. And uh, the story of illegal strikes is, you know, basically you have to reach this threshold of if enough people do it and it's disruptive enough, it can win. And you're all looking around as real workers. Are you guys ready to walk? I don't think, you know, from workers I've heard from, there's a lot of feeling that, look, I'm just going to take my ball and go home. And the, this this path is over. I do think, you know, people are saying it's still possible the Senate passes these sick days. Um, you know, the irony is that the sick days are not enough to fix this industry and they're not enough for what these workers are demanding. But I do think we'll make a difference between people feeling like, you know, is there hope to fight another day or not? But yeah, I don't know. I mean, a, a wildcat rail strike would be have huge penalties, huge risks for the workers doing it and uh, would, of course, uh, be incredibly inspiring. But I haven't seen anything that indicates that that's, you know, I wouldn't expect it. And Jonah, to close on a potentially hopeful note and to pick up on something you were saying about uh, failures of union leadership here and a lack of militancy, one of the things that you track and cover uh, maybe more closely than anyone is a sort of resurgent, more militant grassroots movement um, that is gaining force in certain unions. You think of the Teamsters, certainly. Think of UAW. Um, do you see that as a trend and how important will that trend be if we are going to have a revitalized labor movement? Well, the thing that's happening sort of on a different track in, in labor news this week is that the UA, there's an earthquake happening in the UAW. The UAW is having their first, the auto workers union is having their first national elections, uh, for their first ever membership-wide national elections, and the incumbents are losing in every match that they're in. Uh, there's also an exciting you know, development in one of these rail unions where you had one of these incumbent presidents is apparently so ashamed of how this went down or, you know, knows that the members can't live with it, that he is not seeking re-election. There's wow. an election in February where a rank and file rail worker from Richmond, Virginia named Reese Murtaugh is running for the leadership of a 5,000 member rail union, the 
District 19 of the machinists. And those kinds of things, it's not going to be enough just to put in new people at the top. But people, members taking control of these unions in a direction of we want to fight harder, we don't want to settle for deals like this anymore, um, that's going to make a huge difference. And without that, without some amount of that development, it's really hard to say what us, you know, cheerleaders, us people who aren't in these fights can do. The workers need to take action on their own. And it's been exciting to see in the Teamsters, in the UAW, in some teachers unions, uh, hopefully in some of these rail unions, to see members aggressively pursue a different direction that really could change the direction of U.S. politics. Well, Jonah, thank you so much for helping to understand what is at stake here. Um, guys, the Substack is who gets the bird. Definitely uh, follow him there. Follow him on Twitter and also his writing at Labor Notes, which has been absolutely essential to understanding these fights and always puts the voices of the workers first and foremost. Great to see you, Jonah. Thank, thank you so you, much. Thank you, Jonah. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. All right. So that was Jonah Furman, everybody. Um, He's like the leading expert in the country on this kind of stuff. So it's always good to get the specifics and the details from him. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's demoralizing, isn't it? The whole thing. I mean, there's another piece of this higher level of like, why should critical infrastructure and supply chain lines be dependent on the whims of a few billionaires? Like, this is not a good system that we have set up right here. Yeah, how is that not public? Yeah. It How is sh- that it not public? Be. Well, I mean, we've granted them a monopoly. We let them hold the whole fucking economy hostage so that they can deny their workers like the ability to take a day off when they're puking their guts out. This is insanity. This is Such no way scam. to run a country or an economy or anything else. So there's just layers of insanity built on top of layers of insanity here. And then clearly the Railway Labor Act is also a disaster. Clearly it was a disaster. The initial presidential emergency board recommendations that they've been sort of like, I think that was in a lot of ways the original sin that set them behind the eight ball that didn't even deal with any of the paid sick leave and other like uh, quality of life concerns that workers were most focused on. So it just sucks in particular because we've had such hopeful developments in the grassroots labor movement. And you're just fearful that this will put a chill through everybody and, you know, be a a problem for them moving forward. You know, if Biden did the right thing here and they proposed a bill all the same terms of the previous deal that the workers rejected, except you add seven uh, paid sick days. Yeah. If they if he did that, then he went to go pass it. Let's say he was able to hold all the Democrats, Mm -hmm. all the Democrats vote for it. Right. And you have the Republicans block it. Yeah, I know it'd be bad in the sense that you'd have the strike and that would affect the supply chain and everything, right? But that would be a political win for the Democrats. Yes. And he's afraid of the exact opposite. They're afraid of their own shadow because ultimately, I mean, we have the polling now. The American people say, yeah, go even if it hurts the economy. Go for it. Go for it. Now, I think they would change that after like a week or two. But still, you would know where to put the blame. Exactly right. People would say, what is wrong with you? They just want some sick days. Why won't you vote for that? And instead, you know, you've got this total betrayal, which is there is no other word for it than that. You open up the door for freaking Marco Rubio to look like he's better on labor Mm -hmm. than you are. And it's an utter and complete disgrace. So 
yeah, he should have some balls and put Republicans on the spot of, okay, here's the deal. If you are so worried about the economy, then what's the problem with workers having a few days of sick leave? Insanity. It is. It's absolutely insanity. It is demoralizing. Um, You know, I I know it's a risk, but I think they should strike even if it's illegal and force the hand. Okay, you really want to go full Reagan? Then go ahead, arrest us, fire us, whatever. You know, I know it's a huge risk. It's easy for me to say from a comfy studio. Yeah, I mean, I would, you know, like I was going to say, I would love to see it. Don't get yeah. me wrong. I will be like their biggest cheerleader. I will do whatever. I will raise yeah. money, but mm-hmm. I will stand in solidarity. I'll be out there with them. But I would never say like, you should do this when it's their asses ultimately on the line. Yeah. So the sad, I mean, the sad reality is also because you do have, um, leadership of some of these unions that has been indecisive, that they haven't had one strategy that also makes it difficult to have one organized critical mass to have a strike and have that solidarity and be able to get what you ultimately want to get. So it makes it a very difficult landscape. But, you know, ultimately what's probably going to happen is you'll continue to bleed workers, continue to have the uh, rail freight lines kind of decline and fall apart and cause problems, not just for those workers, but for the entire country. And people will memory hole this whole incident of how this was all done just to deny workers a few days of paid sick leave. Yeah. All right, guys, on that depressing note, (laughs) uh, Crystal and I love you very much. Mommy and daddy love you very much. Um, Do me a favor. Go ahead and sign up on Substack. You you can do it for free. Um, And, you know, you get the... uh, emails of as soon as the audio version of the show drops, you get it sent right to you. Or if you pay five bucks, you can get the video of all the interviews and you get it a day early. Uh, so yeah, big shout out to everybody who already is a paying Substack member. You guys make it work. A uh, big shout out to all of our boys in the control room here. Yep. Yep. Love them. Holden, and also- Peter, all you guys, you're great. We love you. Um, and Piper, of course. Of shout course. out to Piper for the newsletters. Also, guys, we are coming to New York and to Boston next week, December 6th and 7th. So, yeah, so get tickets to come see us. Yeah, we're going to do a live show. The place in New York City is called Town Hall mm-hmm. in Manhattan, right? Is it yeah. Manhattan? Okay. Yep. Uh, so, we'll be there. That's I know it's a sick. Tuesday night. I know. It's, you know, people, they don't go out during the week. I understand that. But um, if, if you'd like to, because we don't know the next time we're going to do an, uh, any of these live shows. Honestly, there's a lot that goes into it. It's hard to balance our schedules with our shows and then also do that. So we don't know when the next time is we're going to do live shows. So if you really want to come see us, definitely come see us. Um, And yeah, we love you guys and we'll talk to you soon. Peace.